Can you imagine what it would be like riding a bike for 24 hours? Now imagine that you are doing this through nature trails, hairy turns and twists at speed and pushing your body to the limit. Today's guest is an ultra mountain bike champion, something that I didn't even know existed. Things that people do while I sleep blows my mind. My name is Ali Hill and this is Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of our world. What does it take? And as a psychologist, I know the power of carving out space to truly connect and to share our stories. And that is the magic of this podcast. Jess Douglas is a lifelong cyclist and a mountain bike champion. She is a three times world solo 24-hour and three times Australian solo 24-hour champion amongst many other crazy long endurance races and adventures. Jess has overcome adversity from being a cancer survivor and has learned how to turn that adversity into resilience and growth. And I know for me that's something I am deeply interested in, particularly with the adversities that we are facing at the moment. Jess talks about her 1% rule, something that she practices each and every day and something that all of us can use no matter what we are aiming to grow in or to develop in. With her bike as a vehicle to deliver a journey of self-reflection and personal growth, please soak up the insights and the stories from the remarkable Jess Douglas. Jess, it's such a delight to be to be sitting down and, and chatting with you. Alison, thank you so much. Uh, after finding out about you and listening to your podcast, I became an instant fan. I love listening to the stories that your um, podcastees uh, are happy to share with. So, yeah, I can't wait to share mine. And when I heard uh, and saw some of your story I knew it was one that I wanted to dive into and and to share so I so appreciate your time. Cycling has obviously been and is a massive part of your life. I want to start with the question do you remember the first time you ever got onto a bike when you learnt to to ride a bike? Yeah I, I do and if the listeners are anything like me they definitely it will bring well I hope it brings a smile to their face when I was four, I was given a second-hand bike for my fourth birthday. My dad took me out the front and he held the saddle and I remember these words and he just said, pedal. And I pedaled. I hopped on, pedaled my bike and he held my saddle. I looked around and I really do remember this. I remember looking around and re- realising he was no longer holding my seat. And that I was the master of my own destiny then. I, pretty much, it, it all happened within that day. That was the moment where I went, oh, this bike. And look, okay, I was four. I don't know exactly what thoughts were that they were, but they're in my heart still and I can feel them. It was a feeling of adventure, um, freedom, and this bike is going to take me places. And I didn't really know that then at four where it would take me. Uh, and just to, to go forward on that, and I know we'll probably go back and forth a bit, but that is one thing I share with a lot of young adults in that middle school age group who are looking to, well, what do I do with the rest of my life? I think whatever was in your heart when you were a child, 
if you can sort of hang on to that and let that sort of stay warm throughout your life as an adult you gain more confidence you might find that you are still in touch with that and then you can take that forward and be whoever you want to be with that feeling so yeah that that has come true for me that sense of um, keeping it warm, I love that, of uh, what was in your heart. There is something about symbolic about um, letting go and I'm sure plenty of people will be smiling and listening, uh, remembering their own experience of learning to ride a bike and whether it was a parent or, um, you know, a family member that kind of let go of the saddle at the time. There's something about um, independence that comes mm. from a child that's able to you know, go where they want to go and, and uh, find their their adventures. Obviously, it's something you did much more than just, uh, you know, a child riding, riding through the streets and a big part of where it has taken you and the adventures it has taken on is mountain biking. Why mountain biking? I really can't answer that. Well, maybe I can. I didn't deliberately get into mountain biking. It was just opportunistic. Uh, but now that I look back, I can see that it really suited my personality because going back to being four and deciding that this was part of the adventure and the journey, mountain biking or the off-road, the ability to be out in nature is that that journey and I guess immersing yourself in slowing down and seeing nature pass you by. Uh, you smell the things, you know, you smell the wildflowers, you you see the birds, you you just see nature. Um, so how did I get into it? Well, I was actually on the Gold Coast and we were living uh, on the Gold Coast at the time and my brother-in-law lived at Narang and he took us out riding at Narang State Forest. He had a spare mountain bike. I went on it, loved it. I was pretty I would say I was pretty scared. I was definitely a very timid cyclist. I wasn't into doing daring things. But to me, being on a bike and riding through bush was like uh, bushwalking, but, but on steroids. It was like a high, high-octane sort of experience where you're like, your adrenaline's going crazy and there's all sorts of things, like the trees are close and it's a really good feeling. Uh, so that was my first real true experience of mountain biking back in 1992. I think it was 1991, 92, somewhere around then. Did, um, did, where else did adventures show up throughout your kind of childhood, whether it was cycling or in other areas? Um, you know, and sometimes it be, can be that connection to nature. Sometimes it can be exploring uh, other things. Was there, yeah, were there other areas where that sense of adventure growing up um, was something that pulled you? Yeah, well, look, if I think about it, my my dad used to take, my mum and my dad split up when we were quite young, so every second weekend we'd hang out with my dad and he was into going on long bushwalks down in the Otways, down along the Bradisham Road and uh, we would often go bushwalks to visit waterfalls and I used to like looking for the little trails that went off into the distance that were obviously rue trails or something and trying to find out where they went. I wasn't really interested in the, the main trail that everyone was on I loved, loved that kind of adventure. Certainly when I was on my bike, I would basically uh, just pack my bike up and go around the river. There was a river trail that was 20 kilometres. I would 
grab a backpack and put an apple in it and some water and just go off for 20 k's. Didn't need anyone to do it with. And certainly there was one really pivotal moment where I guess that next level adventure, I was in, I think it was grade five or grade six. I was around about 11 and we had a bike ed program at school and these two teachers devised this program to take us out on a, on a camp. So we rode 30 kilometres to Queenscliff and then we camped the night and rode back. That was when I realised, oh, we don't have to have adventures in our neighbourhood. We can go adventures longer. Wow. So I'm very grateful for those, you know, there are always people that you meet that they don't realise the impact that they've had on you, but you take it to the next level. Now, not everyone does that. Other people might re- not even remember this bike head camp, but for me it was pivotal in allowing me to understand what I could do with my bike. And when you have your bike as a child, and I think, you know, the adventure that I felt as an adult, a young adult at Narang State Forest on a mountain bike is the exact same feeling as being out on my bike as a, as a 12-year-old riding around the river because I want to. It's what you said earlier. It's this sense of uh, independence. It's a sense of freedom, the sense that you have control over your destiny, uh, that you can find out about things, the unknown that maybe other people aren't. Uh, you, Yeah, I would say I'm definitely what I would call uh, disruptive in the flow of what the majority of people in the world like to do. I would prefer if someone says to me, you know, you should go and do this. This is really popular. I'll say, oh, show me the unpopular thing. I want to go do that. <laughs> so I I found with a lot of the things that I did in life, if other people were doing that, I'd go and do that. So cycling for me offered, offered those opportunities to go and um, become entirely independent of other people's thoughts. Yeah, I love that freedom, the independence, and uh, I, I get a sense of the the rebel within that whatever anyone else was doing, I'll go in another another direction. Coming through high school, did you have a sense of why where you might put your time or your focus in terms of what's next for a you know for want of a better word a career or a, a next step outside of school? Yeah, I think if you talk to anyone in there high school years is very difficult, very challenging time, wondering what it is that you're going to do. I mean, you've got careers, teachers talking to you, you're choosing subjects at school. Uh, My focus when I was young was art. I was very much into art and design and uh, did a lot of painting and drawing and uh, also I spent a lot of time writing books when I was young and riding my bike by myself. So it was very intrinsically motivated kind of action. When I became a teenager, I didn't know what that would translate to because everyone's like, well, what are you going to do when you get older? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, I, I want to keep creating, but I don't want to work indoors in an office. So, you know, I was thinking literally, maybe I'll be a landscape gardener, but I don't like gardening. <laughs> I didn't know what that meant. And then I also knew that I loved helping people. I was with the person that people would come to when they wanted to confide all their secrets in or ask for advice or because I would just be like, well, what are you worried about? You know, what's the worst that can happen? I was very much a very simple, I would give people the answers without getting emotional. 
because they would always come to me and I thought, oh, maybe I'm meant to be a social worker. Who knows? So, no, that was a real struggle for me. But I also knew that I wanted to, I had some entrepreneurial qualities about me. I was pretty keen to, to be self-employed and have my own business. And I thought back in the day, oh, maybe that means that I'm going to be a um, textile designer. I'm going to come up with all these great fabric designs and I'll make crazy doona covers. That was back in the era of Ken Doan. And, yeah, amazing. You know. <laughs> but it was all these ideas and they never really translated. I, but the one constant was that I kept riding my bike. The fantastic occurrence that happened to me, which I look back at it. When I was in 1987, I was 14. I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma which is a cancer. And I look at that and that was, again, another sort of disruption in my life. But it stopped me from just being comfortable. And I've often found that that's a, it's a constant in my life. If something is comfortable, I welcome the uncomfortable because it allows for change. And, and I remember when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was a little bit, you know, oh, I'm going to lose all my hair. But at the same time, I was like, wow, this is, this is going to be a year of change. I wonder what I'll be like at the end. And I wonder what this will happen. And, and I, was, I remember being quite excited about it, about the opportunities that it would avail to me. And I said to my mum, okay, so what we're going to do, I'm going to eat all organic food and I'm going to choose my mindset no one else is going to tell me what I can and can't do. So I don't want you getting worried. I'm not going to die. It's going to be fine. And, and, and you know, all the kids at school were like, don't talk to Jessica about, you know, you know, you imagine 14-year-old girls are brushing their hair and everything. Don't do that around Jess because she's going to lose it. And I would just go up to them and I'd go, I've got cancer. I'm fine. It's just going to be fine. Back off. Stop, stop being so sensitive around me. And, and yeah, and I, I got through that yeah, it's extraordinary. Hey? Uh, it's extraordinary uh, perception, extraordinary stance to have as a fourteen-year-old. Where did that come from for you? Do you think? Oh, Ali, I have thought about this time and time again, and I, I think some things perhaps are born into people. Perhaps that's who I was from the day I was born. I just had a different mindset. I, I very rarely have chosen. A victim stance or woe is me has always gone, oh, something's about to go wrong here. Let's look at the, what I can do. And perhaps it's even been a survival skill. It's like, oh, these are the things I can control. How can I control this? Rather than letting myself float along like a piece of seaweed, I'm very much, all right, so this is the next chapter. Let's go for it. <laughs> Putting yourself in, say, your parents' shoes... Um, you know, as parents, I could imagine it would be one of those, you know, scariest times or to hear that news of a 14-year-old daughter being diagnosed with cancer. What do you think that experience was like for them? Well, I know that the hardest time for them was to see me actually physically be ill after I would have my chemotherapy. I know these days the nausea side of things is better taken care of. So back in 1987, one of the biggest side effects was you'll lose your hair and you'll vomit. And so there was a lot of vomiting and a lot of illness uh, through that. So I think for them, the 
that's when they really got to see, oh, our daughter's sick. Because actually having cancer and going through chemotherapy, I was still myself. But when you see someone vomiting and you can't help them, that's like, okay, now I'm getting the true indication that they are sick. So for them, I think that was the hardest bit because they were cruising along through life. And every now and again, when I have my treatments, they get reminded that they were dealing with their child with cancer. But as my mum has always said to me, and perhaps this is what's given me some of my strength is, you know, you will always do what you want to do. I can't tell you what to do or what to think because you'll just do your own thing. So perhaps she even had a little bit of blind faith in, oh, well, just says she'll get through this. I guess I'll have to trust her. <laughs> but she, what control can she have? She's giving me love. She's giving me a home. She's being my parent. There's not much more a parent can do. Yeah, and to see that strength, um, I get the sense the tenacity of you was going, I'm going to do it anyway, <laughs> Mum. How much of that, um, how long were you sick for? It was, well, I was diagnosed in January of that year, started chemotherapy in February. I think I finished chemo in October. So it's about, you know, about a year. And how much of that experience then when we were talking about, you know, what will I do from the landscaper to social worker after school? How much of that kind of informed the way that you saw the world and uh, the way that life can change in a in a mm. in a, an appointment with a doctor? How much of that informed what you saw as what was next after school? Well, I would have to say I stopped worrying. I actually stopped concerning myself with what I was going to do. And I realise, and I still realise this today, that at any moment I can choose the next path. And so I, it became quite freeing. I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was like every day life is different. I get a chance to press reset. I get a chance to do it again. And it's okay. I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to be um, the world's best at anything. I just need to be me today and get it done uh, it was a blessing and it really did set me up for who I was later in life as a as an older I should say you know not old adult but <laughs> as an older adult as the older I on all these life lessons as we do uh, we draw upon them and we realize that 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 worked or that didn't and we develop our own system so even though you weren't drawn to needing to be the best in the world did go on to become three times world solo 24-hour um, mountain bike champion. So endurance mountain bike uh, races is what you do. How do you go from um, doing it in Narang and getting the thrill and the adrenaline of it to an endurance race, a 24-hour – I didn't even know there was a thing and so this is my ignorance <laughs> <That's right. laughs> that it was an, even a, a type of race, let alone um, you could be Australian champion, let alone you could be world champion. Tell me – talk me through that path from Narang to three times world champion endurance mountain biking. Ali, as soon as you said that, this whole flurry of experiences has come – flooding back into my head because there's no one uh, there's no one thing it was a path and I guess this is you know me jumping forward to uh, a 
told you about how I do life, it evolved organically. It really, it was just these, these tiny little incremental things that I took on because I realized that there was no need to be fearful of what was coming out of an experience to just grab it, do it, learn from it. If I didn't like it, I didn't have to go back. I just had to avail myself to it. And so, you know, when I you go back to Narang, I availed myself to that opportunity. I loved it and I was scared of it all at once. I wanted to do it again and didn't want to do it again all at once. There was so much conflicting fear that somehow or other I went forward and did it, even though uh, even though I was scared shitless. And then people would say, oh, you know, but it's not that scary. In my mind, if I saw a log on the ground that I had to get my wheel up and over, I that looked like death to me. That looked like, yeah, that's a potential, you know, execution of death. Uh, but then I learned a very, a very, very, very valid thing way, way back. Um, we were living in Sydney. I just freshly married. We went to this water slide park in Western Sydney. And I loved riding the water slide, except, and so I was freshly married with my husband. And we're riding the slides and he said, we should go to the speed slide now. I said, I don't want to do the speed slide. And he said, why don't you want to do the speed slide? I said, because it looks scary. And here I am. I'm freshly married at 18, very young. I didn't want to do the speed slide because it looks scary. And he says to me, well, let's go watch it to be watched. And I, he goes, well, what's happening to the people that are coming down there? I said, they look like they're having fun. And I'm saying that because I'm scared because I know what he's going to do next. <laughs> and they look like they're having fun. And he says, well, is anyone like dying? Are they getting at the bottom and saying, I'm never doing that again? And I said, no, they're going up and repeating it. And he says, so why aren't you capable of that? Do you want to have fun? Do you want to join in on it? He wasn't saying I must. He said, do you want to? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, why don't we try it once? And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. And I was just like so nervous. So I tried it the once and, of course, I loved it. And so we did it again and we did it again and we did it again. And that was an epiphany for me. It was just like, okay, so if I'm ever scared of anything, chances are I'm not the trailblazer. Chances are someone has done it before me to some degree. And, and, and I can draw upon that, even if I can't research it, even if I can't access it on the internet, even if I can't read a book about it, just somewhere inside me, I can say, you know what, someone's done it before me. I even use that exact metaphor when I was giving birth or, or it was coming up to my due date for my daughter. And I realized, oh, oh, I've got to give birth to this. Oh, shit. Oh, how's this going to happen? And then we hang on, Jeff. People have been given birth for years before you, girlfriend. Just do it. Just hand it over. Yeah. So that's kind of the, the methodology in which I embraced every challenge that was brought before me to finally become a world champion. I just kept letting myself grow and like embrace being uncomfortable and embrace the scariness of it. And then eventually... I realized I had a trait that no one else had. 
24 hour racing, you said it's very long, it's very arduous, and you don't just ride around for 24 hours if you want to win these things. It's bloody hard work. You race, it's racing all through the night, but 12 o'clock midday finishes at 12 o'clock midday on mountain bike trails. So it's very, very tough. And I realized that um, I have a trait, probably born from years of adversity and things that have gone wrong, but it was um, the ability to suffer when everyone else was looking for a cozy cup of tea or something I was the one that could just dig down deep and go well I'm having fun now so at about midnight that is definitely where I would start to have fun and I look back at all the things that I've done in my previous years through from you know cancer through to being enjoying my own company and doing solo activities I found I found it like a meditation retreat you get to find out about yourself. The first six hours are the hardest, and after that, it's like you can start cracking the code of life out there on your own. Anyone who's ever been pushed to the brink of pain and suffering and, and for a long duration of time will often have all these little things just pop down, and then you go, ah, life is not hard. This is really cool. And I think what people are afraid of when they're doing long, arduous activity is, is the pain. But I used to develop this relationship with the pain. I'd say, come and sit here on my shoulder. You can come along for the ride and you're reminding me that I'm in the game. Because if I'm not feeling pain, then I'm actually not in the race. It's kind of like life, really. People avoid the pain because they, they think life is full of happiness and joy, joy, joy. And you say, well, actually, the pain is what gives you the, the yin and the yang. You've got to have it. So I think when the pain came, I didn't, I didn't say, you piss off from my life. It was like, come in. You're not allowed in me, but you can be there alongside of me. I love that invitation to it. And uh, I'll come back in a moment to even that invitation to I'm having fun and that, that happens six, six hours in. Um, it's uh, an extraordinary experience. I think one of the other things that people are fearful of, and I'm making the assumption here, but I, I, um, I'm presuming that sometimes when you talk about that spending time with yourself and um, what it can reveal about you and about your life, uh, you know, over length of time, those kind of endurance pushing yourself, that there can be a fear of, but what if I, what will I find out? What if there's something I'll be confronted with that I can't cope with, a reality of myself or my life that um, I don't even want to go near. I don't want to like and we, we push it down and it doesn't have to be in endurance races but we, we push it down with work and busyness and family and wine at the end of the night and everything else and there can be that fear. How have you navigated or faced or welcomed in that experience? Oh, you've nailed it on the head. I think everything that we do to avoid that, we try to dull our senses with other activity with, or, or like you said, or alcohol, drugs or life in general to dull the senses so that we don't feel it. When you are faced with adversity, let's say a death in the family or someone's ill or an endurance race, uh, that is pushed up 
and often people don't know how to deal with it. Um, they don't want to ask for help or I, I, for me, and I try to talk, I, I coach a lot of athletes and I talk to a lot of people about this concept is that I truly believe people should spend more time with themselves and not be afraid of it because that's where you find out, I feel, the true the true worth and the true value of what you've got to give yourself, not what you, people expect of you, but, you know, what is it that makes your heart sing? What is it that makes you really happy? And you have to face the shitty stuff that's going to pop up to the top to, to, to get to that gold. If you don't, you'll never have that true gold and you're missing out Um and I know even now as 47 and I haven't raced the 24-hour race in 2015, I still like to go put myself under under pressure. I'll often go out and do an all-day ride by myself and I love it because they are the times where there'll be all sorts of clutter in my head and it's fuzzy. It's like, oh, I say it's like, you know, a radio that's not tuned in properly and it could take two hours before I finally go, I found peace. I found peace and quiet. And that's how I would feel on 24-hour races. It would be just fuzz, 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 fuzz. And then six hours in, ah, peace. And then you can start digesting the thoughts that are going on. And I think we often don't allow ourselves time for that fuzz to be quiet or we don't even acknowledge it. No, or we we try and uh, we want the, the express lane version of it. So rather than doing the, the two hours, I've got twenty minutes, right? So can I can I can I get to the peace and quiet in twenty minutes as opposed to the commitment to six hours or two hours, as you say, of of um, facing that and and spending time having a day? Mm. Um, yeah, I'm almost you know part of me is going, oh, what could I do if I just went trekking or hiking for a day I'm, I'm probably oh not going to hit the mountain bikes just yet but um yeah that that time with ourselves and our thoughts to get to get rid of that fuzz um I want to ask you about the practicality of um so probably take me to the first race that was your world champion possibility the the option take me to that um and I'm interested in just the practicality of a 24-hour endurance race are you doing the same circuit over a period of time um is it about the first in wins or is there other tactical approaches to the way that the race works uh food nutrition rest sleep those sorts of things (laughs) how does it work well, it's it's a race, so the people who win it, okay, I'll go back to the very start. Let's talk about it. The 24-hour race is a race held over 24 hours, obviously. It starts at 12 o'clock midday on often the Saturday and finishes 12 o'clock midday on the Sunday. It is often ran on a course that has predominantly mountain bike single track and single track is like tiny little specific mountain bike trail which is like bushwalking track but for mountain bikes interspersed with fire trails so that you can drink and pass and you know it's not total single track but it's quite technical lots of features rocks and roots and tight tight twists and turns 
Then you'll come back. The lap could be about an hour long. And, you know, depending on the technicality, it could be anywhere from 10 kilometres to 20 kilometres long. Less technical, it's probably longer. And by technical, that means that you're going less kilometres per hour because of the features on it. Uh, then you'll come back into what, an area that's like the pit. So you just got to think of like a multi-lap, you know, Bathurst or something. Mm. Uh, you've got a pit and you've got pit crew. You can have no pit crew if you want. But if you're going to win, you probably need a spare bike and you probably need a good pit crew that are going to stay up through the whole night. You need light. You need food. You need a whole smorgasbord of food mm. because you get food fatigue. Uh, you need things that you can eat quickly, things that will digest quickly because you don't want something sitting in your gut. You're trying to work really hard because then you'll get gastric upset. Um, your food won't get digested properly. You might be sick, uh, all sorts of things. Obviously, you need to keep up hydration. With your hydration, you're going to sweat during the day, but probably not so much during the night. You need to worry about salt intake. Um and so electrolytes are good for, for that. But then during the night, you get sick of electrolytes because your, your mouth gets a bit cut up and you get a bit sickly feeling. So I often had cups of tea during the night in my drink bottles, cups of tea with sugar, black tea. And it was just like so invigorating having something different. Uh, then what else were we talking about? So nutrition, hydration, you come back into the pit and the pit crew will look after you and you'll do a bottle swap and you'll try to spend the least amount of time in the pit so that you can get going again. When it gets nighttime, you've got to have lights on your bike. So the more amount of lighting you've got, the faster amount of speed you can keep up. Then you will race around as fast as you can. You do not sleep. If you sleep, you won't win. Simple as that. How do you keep awake? It's up to you. The more engaging the single track, the more engaging the course, the more technical it is, the more your brain has to work. Therefore, you stay awake. So if you were driving, say, from Melbourne to Sydney on the Hume Highway with your cruise control in the car, you're probably going to fall asleep. But if it was windy roads up a mountain at 2 o'clock in the morning, you'd be full alert. You probably wouldn't fall asleep. And that's why I always say to people, you know, if it's a boring course, I'm probably going to feel the sleep monsters. But if it's a really engaging course, I won't feel so tired. Um, the person who wins, it's a person who has been able to manage to get the most amount of distance. So let's say your opponent is 10 minutes behind you and you come in at 24 hours and one minute because the race finishes at 24 hours and you come in a minute after and you're on the same lap and then 10 minutes behind, well, obviously you've won. That's how it's sort of executed did that answer all? Yeah, no, that's really, I mean, it's just fascinating. The, the practicalities, the research, the planning and the preparation must be massive alongside your pit crew who are there to support you and cheer you on and, um, mm. you know, give you updates, I guess, on where other, other people are at. Um, so what sort of distance would you be doing in a 24 hours? Like what are you covering? It, it does vary, again, depending on the course, but... The World Championship in 2010, I got, I, I traveled 400 and uh, it was low 400s in kilometers over the course of 24 hours. One of the hardest things is um, to explain to people, you know, they say, oh, that sounds like a lot of kilometers. Uh, it's because you're going through single track, you're going a little slower. I've done a road race where I've done 700 and 
20 kilometers in 24 hours. So it's a little bit different. You can travel a lot faster. One of the, the hardest things within the 24-hour race and why I say the first six hours is the hardest is you are waiting for people to falter. It's a race of attrition. It's kind of like life. Uh, I always thought my 24-hour racing, I could always put the parallels straight back to real life. It was like, this is like real life. You're cruising along. Everyone's with you. In the first instance, uh, you feel maybe a bit of imposter sort of syndrome, like, yeah, I, I don't belong here. Look, at she's faster than me. He's faster than me. Um, and you have to go, you have to really become really focused on your internal processes. You cannot look at everyone else and go, they're going fast, they're doing this, I'll follow their game plan. You have to be so engaged in your own game plan and follow your own processes. So that's how I became a world champion. Like I was saying before about all the experience that I've had previously uh, with adversity, my mindset, uh, how I organically grew to love, embrace the challenge of mountain biking. I also became very focused on my processes and that, that allowed me again control blocking out all my competition yes they were there I needed them thank you for being here because without you my efforts aren't validated but right now I have a set of processes and I know if I tick 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 those processes then I'm going to be putting myself in an opportunity in a position to now go okay, you've looked after your nutrition, you've looked after your bike, you've looked after your body, you've looked after your mind, you've made good decisions, all the things that you said you would do. Six hours later, look where you are. Everyone else has died in the arse because they ran around like rabbits in headlights or rode around. They didn't look after their nutrition properly in the first six hours because they were racing too hard. They forgot to drink, they forgot to eat, and they just went too hard. You have now looked after yourself. Now you can shine. And I think, you know, in life we, we often get too caught up in the headlights and worrying about what everyone else is doing and we just hunker down, like you were saying before, about having that, that solo time and going for a hike and forgetting about what everyone else is doing and just go, ah, well, what do I want and how am I going to get it? Because I'm actually just as capable as everyone else. I was put on this earth to be to be worthy. Let me be so. Let me stop being um, paralysed by everyone else's apparent success. I'm denying myself of my own success that I deserve. And that's how I became a world champion. And, and when I did that and I followed my processes and I believed in myself, I was like, oh, my God, that was so easy. Far out. I'm going to do that every time I want to achieve something big. And that's where I really felt that I cracked the code of living. It was not hard. You just had to be willing to do the hard work early. It's like, you know, in any, everything in life, people are looking to pay the price later. Interest-free, pay in 24 months. No, no, no. You don't have to pay the price somewhere. You may as well pay it up front. Do the hard work now. And then the rewards, you know, they just, they keep coming. I, I'm so stoked with my life. I, sure, I've had upheavals and depression and moments of wondering, you know, what's it all for? But then I just bring myself back to my processes, 
And I guess, you know, following my heart, and that's why I'm still on the bike, and, and then I feel fulfilled. I don't have to be the best in the world. I just have to be the best me. I love those parallels to to life and as you described those comparisons early on can be, well, I'm not not in the lead or I'm not, you know, they seem to be doing things better and yet um, ultimately the goal in, in I imagine, that 24-hour endurance race is to still be there, to still be standing to first and foremost and then if you can be the one out the front, that's, that's kind of secondary um, mm. and the same to each day we turn up in the work that we do and... Uh, the way that we turn up to that is is actually just how can I still be here? Um, how can I be looking after the things that I can take control of? Even in amongst all that planning, preparation, mindset, you um, have taken on a, a race um, that is on the edge when it comes to injuries and uh accidents that can occur, the speeds that, that happen in mountain biking. Is, has there been a particular incident that, uh, that you have experienced that maybe was a fall or, a, um, you know, a situation that was, that was tough to go through? Yeah, look, the, the falls that I've had, uh, well, I've had one fall where I fell on my face and knocked three teeth out. Uh, this was just a training ride. And it was $12,000 of dental work <laughs> and, uh, you know, a, a lot of recovery and certainly building up my confidence again. Because when your face lands in the dirt, you really feel it. And so from then on, I was it's, it's kind of like I was looking for all the problems that might occur as I was riding along. Oh, I could fall on that. Oh, I could fall on that. Oh, I could fall on that. And then I used, uh, again, when I was talking about the water slide really early on, I, I, I was like, well, this will not be the first fall I ever have. This won't be the last. This is other people have fallen before and, and, and gotten up. All right, okay, so what I need to do right here is just accept that was a fall. I did not fall because of skill. It was, it was a random fall. I didn't choose to jump off something big and do something crazy. It was just a random thing. Um, you're not a crappy mountain biker because of this fall. Uh, you won't be a crappy mountain biker in the future because of this fall. How many times have you ridden before and never fallen? So the truth here, the only truth here, is that you actually fell once and bashed out your teeth and need a lot of dental work. And it happened once. It's now up to you to make sure that you build up more successes again um, so that the, the, the ratio, <laughs> the percentage is, is lower because, you know, people won't go back again because I, I had that time when I fell and then I broke my teeth. And so mountain biking is really dangerous. Yeah, it just happened once. Okay, it wasn't that great, but it did just happen once. And so I allowed myself time. I think it took about three months for me to get my uh, mojo and, and the flow back without looking at the ground, looking at rocks and thinking that could, you know, hurt me. Yeah, our brains are and on I, high alert, aren't they? They're on high alert for anything yeah. that could be dangerous. Yeah, exactly. And so it became um, a new goal for me, a new practice to go out on a bike ride and I'd use the first 10 minutes 
just to allow myself to settle in. Don't do anything stupid. Just ride. Do not expect anything from yourself. It's like a warm-up protocol for life. Just get going. Get going. Forget about the crash. I mean, not forget about it, but don't let that consume you. Just acknowledge the crash happened. You're on a bike. That's You're going to be feeling a little nervous. And then within half an hour, I'd be riding. Okay, uh, maybe the speed wasn't as fast. And then before I knew it, I was back riding again and people were saying, oh, so were you thinking about, the, you know, often people's fears, people's own fears come out in their expression. How come you're still riding a bike? What was that time that you had your teeth, you know? Rah, 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 rah. And it's like, please don't put your fears upon me because they're your fears, not mine. I've dealt with it. <laughs> uh, so that was one experience. And yes, you know, that will always live with me. But it doesn't define me. The other experience was I was on a bike packing race. Now, this is a whole nother kettle of fish. Uh, bike packing is where you are self-propelled. You look after yourself. You have like a tracker where people can look at you on the internet and find out where you are. But it's you follow a GPS file and you have to get from A to B. And this was this circumnavigation of uh, kind of like Canberra in to the Manara Ranges, into Victoria, back through. Uh, it's a 1,000 kilometres. You do it as quick as you can. So not much sleep. If you want to sleep, you could sleep wherever you want. I carried a bivy and slept in a sleeping bag and slept on the side of the track in my whatever I could. And you stop off at shops and get food and, and just ride. So it was 200 kilometres away from Canberra. I was coming second to a guy, oh, he was maybe two hours in front. I was like, I think I can win this. I think I can win this. But I was at the top of this area. It was about 1,000 metres above sea level. It peak, peak ridge or something. I can't quite remember what it was called. But 1,000 metres above sea level and there's wombats everywhere. Like, you know, it's 8 o'clock at night. There's just wombats going crazy. And I texted Norm, my husband, and I said, oh, wow, it's like wombat city up here. It's amazing. You don't have wombats down in, in Geelong region, and but they're gorgeous. And I said, all right, I'm just going to take it really cruisy here because, you know, wombats just go everywhere. You know, you think kangaroos are bad. Wombats are crazy. So I had deliberately slowed down. And before you knew it, I hit a wombat. Oh. Now, I don't, I don't know about hitting the wombat because I was out of it for half an hour. I can tell this because of my GPS device and when I downloaded it, I could see when my heart rate went from this to like 50 beats per minute and I didn't move for 30 minutes. And I got back up and I'm thinking, oh, what am I, what am I doing here? And I was out of it. I was so out of it. I felt drunk. I, you know, trying to tune in my mind to what's going on. I couldn't think and I felt sore and I could feel that my head and my shoulder was sore. And I started riding and my bike was sort of wobbling all over the place. And I realized, oh, maybe, maybe I've, I've had a crash. Oh, yeah, I've, I'm all cut up. Oh, this is really weird. Um, maybe I'll see if my front wheel is, 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 uh, buckled. No, my front wheel wasn't buckled. And then I went, ah, oh, I think I know what's happened. Uh, you know, and the, the wombat has hit my front wheel and just made me go bang and, and land on the right-hand side of my head. 
without even falling on my shoulder first. It's just gone straight to my head. So I've been totally concussed. Went to a farmhouse. They called my husband for me because I couldn't talk. All I wanted to do was sleep. Went to Kuma Hospital. Uh, after that, I just, I actually did what I think what you call it a, um, it's not an acquired brain injury, a traumatic brain injury. So I had about a mm, 10-week return to play kind of protocol. Uh, worked with a doctor that worked with AFL footy players. And, you know, that was really hard doing all these these sums and um, problem-solving things that you've got to do when you've been concussed so badly. And, and again, I had to go through that process. I was looking at the ground going, oh, my God, anything could happen here. Anything could happen here. And now I look back and I go, oh, when I was concussed and when I was coming back from that, I didn't know that I would ever, ever ride a bike again. These things happen and people I know people who say I've never gone back on a bike again because it was so bad and I've been lucky. I look at those two circumstances there, my voice crashes. So I have come back from, well, I haven't come back from the death. I've, I've been very lucky. You, and even the process you described of yourself is almost like self-coaching. What are the questions I can ask? What, how, how do I... Uh, work my way back onto the bike, back into the experience and then back into the joy of it. I know one of the things you do at the moment is coaching and and working with athletes um, from a whole range of different areas and I think it's important to have coaches and and people who support you. Um, Throughout, I guess, your, your writing and your career, how important has that been for you to have those people when... Sometimes mentally we don't feel as strong or all those doubts that are uh, coming up. How important has that been in your career? Yeah, look, I think when I've decided that uh, there have been multiple big races that I've wanted to really nail, I do a lot of self-coaching myself, but I have employed um, trusted coaches during those phases to say like, okay, for the next year, I'm going to focus on this. Can you help me? And what I've needed during that time is for someone, well, for me to just ah, hand over, <laughs> hand over some, uh, some of the hard tasks of actually telling me what to do, but also not just telling me verbatim, you know, I will do this and, you know, that's what I'm going to do. But to have that conversation of um, reflection as well, perhaps of what, what is important and what's not so important and why why do I want to win this and what does it mean for me? And ultimately when I've come down to the crux of what a coach is and even myself as a coach to my cyclist now, I say, hey, guys, we're just riding bikes. I don't even care, honestly, if you are striving to reach the Olympics. It's just the Olympics. And I use the word with intent, just. Because, you know, often we use the word just and, you know, it, it um, brings it down a notch. And that's what I really mean to do is we perhaps not let us, ourselves take ourselves so seriously. So with taking on the coach, I would always say, look, I want to win this and I want to put all my eggs in one basket to, to really make this happen. But I'm using it more as, as a stepping stone 
to prove some methodologies to myself, to prove these processes, to almost like a professional development, self-development, to grow as a person, not get caught in the end result. Because the end result is fleeting. It's the entire process of where that takes you and then what you, the, the self-realisation at the top becomes the real gold, not the medal, not the jersey. And, and I think that's probably a lot of the time where I felt a lot of my deflation is at the top when you realise, I've won a world championship, <clears throat> whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I know that sounds really bad, but you get there and you go, well, the world championship, yeah, it's wonderful, it's amazing, but I enjoyed the journey better. And I think it's important um, whatever, you know, anyone listening, whatever that mountain is that they're aiming to climb, because um, there can be, once we get there, there can be almost this, Oh, is this it? Like, is that? Mm-hmm. And then you go back tomorrow, and the sun comes up again, and the sky's blue, and you need to have breakfast, and the kids have lost a shoe, and you know, we're back into it. And so, if self worth is so tied into that, there can be this post uh, post high down or slump. Um, mm. Whereas you're talking about, yeah, the 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 pathway, the growth, the learning is just as important. One of the things that you uh, talk about is a methodology that you, I think, share with your coaching but also in the speaking that you do around the 1% rule um, that you practice and that you you encourage other people to do. What does it mean by the 1% rule? Well, when I started my mountain biking sort of, I guess, journey, would have been, what was the year? 2006 is when I decided this this was going to work for me. What happened? I turned up to a mountain bike race and I enjoyed it. I loved it. I realised I need this to be a part of my life. I want to be better. But there's a lot of work to do. And it flooded my mind with a little bit of anxiety of all the work that I had to do to achieve greatness in this sport. So it was overwhelming. So rather than let that become overwhelming, I realised, well, I have control of this again. If I just break it down into small manageable chunks and don't expect myself to be amazing tomorrow, again, I, there's no expressway here. <laughs> I have to do the hard work. So it was very, very simple for me. I devised this 1% rule. Now, the 1% rule, you know, you hear footy coaches talk about it all the time. Yeah, we'll just give the 1% you know. It was, it was applicable to me. And that was get out at least one day a week for one hour and improve one, just one component of my mountain biking It could be whether I'm going to get off the brakes earlier, whether I'm going to go downhill slightly faster, whether I want to, you know, focus on climbing uphill better. It didn't matter what the element was. It was just the action of choosing in my head deliberately this one action today is all I want to achieve. You don't have to record any metrics. Just go out and improve this one thing by 1%. The other riding, oh, it's not just, you know, I could do other riding, but one, one day a week was focused. Anyway, one week goes by. 
that turns into one month and eventually one year will go by. And if you do that 1% and you focus on that 1%, it will consolidate, it will compound. And as interest does, once you put in 1% and you continue to do that, that 1% will turn into two and then four and blah, 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 blah. In a year's time, you can't have failed. And that gave me great ah, sense of relief. Okay, this is a process. I'll just follow this process. My God, um, I can't fail. That process delivered results and I enjoyed it. I loved it. And at the end of that year, I had won a few races. I had learnt so much and I had stopped worrying about the results and focused on the enjoyment of learning. And that's what I do today and that's what I try to focus my, my coaching clients on is you will get there. We can have this little pie in the sky, little goal, and we can put that there as something to really strive towards. But let's go back and break it down into these enjoyable chunks of learning. And once you realise that it becomes this lifelong learning process in every sphere of your life, and people say to me, but what about when you want a rest day? Well, that's part of the 1% rule. Just go, I'm going to rest a little harder today. Maybe I need to actually turn off my mobile phone and go to bed earlier. Um, maybe I need to only have one coffee today. There's other ways that you can bring this 1% rule. But don't you ever just chill, Jeff? Yeah, chilling is part of it. It is purposeful action. I guess that's really what it is. It's purposeful. You are labelling it and going, I am doing this because of this and therefore... I am striving and I'm moving towards that. You're not just being, again, I'll use that analogy, you're not just being a piece of seaweed just being floated along by the the, um, the sea to the whim of wherever the currents are. Are there any projects you're working on at the moment where you're applying your 1% rule? Oh, yes, the book. <laughs> My book, <laughs> I'm doing an hour a day and it doesn't matter if I don't get 500 words written it matters that I've spent an hour, whether it's research, whether it's understanding and really extrapolating upon something that I need to or or even sometimes I, I've been looking at other people's books and going, oh, I really like the way they've done that. But as long as that hour a day has been spent towards adding towards my book, I know I'll get there. So that is absolutely a project that I'm doing. Uh, there would be another one. I'm... Um, Oh, it hasn't actually encountered yet, but I start uni next uh, trimester. I transferred from a course. I was doing exercise and sports science, but I've transferred to psychology, which is really I want to get in the area of sports psychology. But again, I'm still, I've got a few books here that I'm reading. Uh, so, yeah, I just read an hour a day as well. Uh I, I think that they're probably the most applicable things at the moment and what, I have not stopped writing. Yeah, amazing, amazing. What are some of your non-negotiables for um, for your own energy, for your own state uh, and for your own mental well-being? What are the things that, that are non-negotiable for you? I call it pumpkin o'clock and that is I'm going to bed. It's just like if things are going... If I'm not in bed by 10 o'clock, it's just like I'm off. It's not even sorry. I'm out of here. In the bed. <laughs> just gone. That's my first non-negotiable. 
Uh, I like to get eight hours sleep. And even if it's not pure sleep, I like to be in bed for that eight hours because if it's my recharge. I think we all need to acknowledge how do we recharge. And if you value your sleep, that's the very, I think, that is the basis. If you want to be a high performer in anywhere, the ability for your brain, for your body, for everything to just go, ah, we can, we can actually switch off. I mean, I've got a computer that I don't switch off very often and then it stops running slow. And then my husband says, when was the last time you restarted your computer? It's like, oh, yeah, it runs so much better now. <laughs> it's a very good analogy. Uh, that's my first non-negotiable. And the other non-negotiable is that my exercise. Now, I don't mean my exercise in a form of, you know, it sounds often, you know, people must think I'm addicted to it. But, again, it's like a meditation for me. When I go and ride my bike or when I get involved in my gym or my core work, the processes slow my mind down. It's that simple. And when my mind slows down, I think clearer. When I think clearer, I come up with great ideas. And when I come up with great ideas, I feel good about myself and then I'm having a good day. That simple. Yep, that's <laughs> They're probably a... my two non-negotiables. Yeah, I love that. Um, and it is bringing back to that. And it's simple but it's the priority. It's putting the priority on those uh, in amongst our in amongst our day. One of the things you talk about and certainly in your in sharing your story is that adversity can equal growth um, and and often by human nature and our brain is kind of hardwired to to not want adversity, to not want to go near it and yet, you know, you've already shared some of your stories where that, where growth has actually come from facing, um, invite, you know, welcoming and and you know, seeing adversity from a from a different angle. Um, we are at a t- point in time where things are hard in our world at the moment. With COVID-19 here in Australia, we are starting to see some of the easing of restrictions, but I know you're down in Geelong and, you know, Victoria's kind of navigating what that might look like at the moment. Um, there are countries that are going through second waves of lockdown. There are whole countries that... Um, you know, haven't even been impacted yet and yet that trajectory is, is coming. And so adversity is uh, is here on a national level. It's impacting our economy, which means it's impacting individuals um, from a career and a work point of view. How do we look for, find growth in amongst such massive change? Uh, and I know we're talking bigger, but I guess if we come back to the day-to-day actions that people can can take on board, mm. but even that mindset of seeing the growth in amongst adversity, where where do you even start when it feels really hard and overwhelming? Mm. Yeah, such a valid point. And, you know, I'm talking to my coaching clients about this daily, you know, even from coaching athletes, 80% of it is working with them in their headspace and the other 20% is the sport side. Um, look, I think the one thing that I think is the most important right now with everyone, no matter whether you're about to lose your job, you've lost your job or income's gone down or you've lost a family member, is not, and we've spoken about this, is not to push away the 
the pain, not to push away the uncomfortableness, not to ignore it, not to pretend it's going to be okay. I think the first stage in, in anything such with such big magnitude is unfortunately to talk about it and to feel it and to be feeling sad about it and to be feeling uncertain. And, you know, I remember the first couple of weeks I felt really dull and my edge was taken off because I don't know about you, but when I feel I'm uncertain about my future and I'm losing a little bit of control over my day-to-day activity, there's no there's no end game anymore. The end game has been taken away. And so we're not sure. And I think every human that doesn't have certainty is going to feel very unsafe and feeling they're not sure why they're doing this anymore. Why bother? Why go to work? Why bother about money? Why bother about love? Why bother about happiness? It's all going to end and we can get quite catastrophic about it. So that first stage where we're at, I think, is is not to ignore the feeling. And once we've gone through that, then you have a second coming. <laughs> then you go, actually, it's okay. I did catastrophic, catastrophize about catastrophize about that a little bit, but um, I'm over that. And you know, the support that you get from people. This is where it's the most important. I think, you know, there's a lot of people in the world who aren't accessing or don't have access to people who can support them. Perhaps, you know, you don't want to be in echo chambers right now, sitting there um, all talking about how woeful it is and uh, you need people to challenge your thoughts or, or give you other ideas or opportunities to expand upon and that could be as simple as getting back into um, something that once upon a time did light you up, such as exercise or reading books. Um, and I guess this is where I'm, I'm heading is that we need to look at the opportunity to perhaps re-establish our priority on who we are. And if you look about where we were as a modern world, you said it before, this this state of busyness and state of filling the void and numbing our senses with with this. And and I think for me, and I've loved it, I've really embraced this, this period. It's given me time to knuckle down and do things that I haven't yet done, such as write the book and... The opportunity with adversity, I think, the adversity rips off the scab, so to speak, of a wound and opens it up and then you get a new opportunity to work out how you're going to heal it. Um, and the opportunity we've got right now in this situation is, yes, we've got time. Uh, we can connect with people over Zoom uh, okay, so, you know, again, you know, half of me goes, well, that's a bit of a privileged situation. What about for people who don't have internet? What about, and, and you know, I, I, I really feel for that. I don't have the answer to that, but I know that the, if I was in that situation, I would still be searching for opportunities to grow, opportunities to 
perhaps even, all right, now I can take the onus off me. I don't have to be at work. I've lost my job, but I've got job seeker, for example. What can I do for my community? I have time. I have time. And I don't know about yourself, but when you are so consumed by your own focus, sometimes that can also cause you in action. Whereas when you go, what can I do to serve? What can I do to take the onus off me? Then there's, there's a sense of purpose. Yeah, yeah. I think that ability to recognise, I mean, just the call out and go, it, the pain is there. Um, mm. And even going back to, you know, your analogy of the 24-hour bike ride is that, you know, pain's just going to sit there and, in fact, you go, thanks, and it means I'm pushing and it means that um, something is shifting, something is changing. Uh, but almost that permission to know that it's possible that there could be opportunity. It's possible that there could be growth mm. even in what I'm facing um, can be enough just to open the door of going, I wonder what it could be or I wonder where mm. I could put some time. I agree with you. I think this time is that kind of collective reshaking and that ability to, to go, actually maybe there were things that weren't serving that we could let go of, uh, time, oh. focus, things we worried about that maybe just didn't need to be worried about. Do you know there's one thing that I'm really not going to re-invite into my life? And <laughs> it sounds really bad, but we used to go out to dinner so much, and I'm sorry for the hospitality industry listening, but I was spending far too much time and money going out for dinner. And I'm cooking. I'm back to cooking at home. I know that sounds really bad for this industry that's been created upon lazy buggers like myself. But I, I realise I probably don't need that as much. Maybe once a week, not three times a week. Um, other things, uh, I used to, yeah, I used to get out of the house a lot and do lots of rides. Pro, we used to call them pro-hour rides where you go out because, you know, being self-employed and doing what I can do, I, I could go out during the day and work at night. Now I've rearranged my working hours sort of more back to nine to five or not quite nine to five, but, and I do my riding indoors in my trainer and I go out on the weekend. And for me, that's brought back a little bit of structure. I found I was probably working too much and now I'm not working too much. I have more structure over my time. So yeah, there's been a lot of, a lot of positives anyhow. Yeah, yeah, and more of those to kind of keep coming back to and reassessing. I want to come back to something that you said earlier um, and there was a point where you kind of went in that 24-hour endurance rides uh, starting at midday on whether it's a Saturday, finishing at midday the next day, that at about midnight there's a there's a part of you that clicks into gear and go, I'm having fun now. Um, and I want to come back to that essence of... In, in amongst the, the pain and something that's hard and something that, some, you know, can be seen as quite serious, this essence of, geez, I'm having fun now, um, really kind of called to me. And, you know, there's, there's almost this kind of interweaving of what are the ways that we can almost take the pressure off and find the ways that we can have fun? What are the things mm. that, uh, that you are having fun with now at the moment? I, I look at what you just said in my head. I've been searching for those elements. And it's when, you're, when you've let go 
well, initially you have to immerse yourself and go, all right, I'm going to work. And then it's when you've found the flow state, when you're in it. And often people won't give themselves the opportunity to get into that flow state. I find when I'm, a lot of my study at the moment, a lot of my work that I do at the moment happens halfway through the day. It's after lunch that I'm finding my groove, the afternoon. So, and and how I have fun with it is that I realise that my brain is learning and I'm just loving learning at the moment. I'm loving immersing myself. Even with my coaching clients, I'm, I'm currently spending, I've spent the last two weekends in Zoom webinar style delivery of level two cycle coaching Saturday Sunday. I just had it Saturday Sunday last weekend and I'll have it Saturday Sunday the next weekend. So that's uh whew, a lot. Four six and a half hour webinar sessions learning that it's quite tiring. However, when I walk away from that and I realize here I am at 47, because we talk about this all the time with my husband. Where are we right now? I mean, look at what we've just done in the last 30 years. What are we going to do in the next 30 years? So I'm really excited and, and having lots of fun with learning. But the first hour is tough. <laughs> I'm procrastinating. I go and grab a glass of water. Oh, what can I eat? Oh, I'll just check that email. Oh. I know. Or you find the the dirt that you haven't seen for a week and then all of a sudden it needs to be cleaned. It needs to be sorted. That can happen. Yeah. So, you know, I'm not saying uh, I've given up on being an athlete because I still train like an athlete. I still have athletic goals. I still have things on my calendar. They're just a little bit unknown at the moment with the virus and where, where that opening up of racing is going to be. So I just what I, I do what I've say to my clients, I have left the pot on the back of the stove simmering and I don't let it go empty. I don't let it dry out. I just keep it simmering and that's what I'm doing right now. So the opportunity to learn and really immerse myself in that, I'm just like so excited. I just think the, the human brain and our ability to absorb, I'm a better learner now at 47 than I definitely was 30 years ago. Jess, it's been such a delight to be chatting with you and there's so much that I've taken out of this conversation. Uh, I want to wrap up by asking you the question that I ask every guest that comes on to this podcast. The podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Mm. Look, I think it's, uh, I call it an honesty check-in with yourself daily and say did I do did I do myself justice did I do the best that I could do am I happy with this can I put my head on the pillow and go yeah you're killing life you're slaying it that's when I feel that I'm doing myself justice is when I can tick those boxes when I'm holding back I think tomorrow I've got to get that done no procrastinating no excuses no doing I either own it that I want to do it or own it that no, that no longer serves me. I don't want to do it anymore. So that standout life, I think for me is to be able to have an honest 
check in with yourself and say, am I living the true integral life to myself? There's something I always share with my clients and it's, I don't know whether, I think I invented it. <laughs> I will say, I think this is my quote. Uh, you will not always be the best person on a start line in any in any format. There's always probably going to be someone better than you. Even if you are a world champion, maybe there's someone out there that hasn't come to the arena yet. You won't always turn up on the day in your best form. Perhaps you are a little underdone today. Perhaps you're tired. Perhaps you're just not with it. Perhaps you've been sick, but you're just not your 100%. However, whatever you've got, whatever you have brought to you the table today, you can still do your best. And that's kind of like an honesty check-in with yourself. I don't want to hear the excuses. I don't want to hear, oh, I can't do it today because I'm tired. I've got a cold. I've got this. Just do your best today. Whatever you've got, bring it, do it. And and when I have people who who um oh, what I call fence sitters, they say you're either in or you're out. Which one? Stop sitting on the fence. In or out? Own it. Um. So that that would be yeah. I guess my best way of explaining a standout life. I love it. That sense of owning where I'm at, bringing my best right now. Uh, it's been such a delight, Jess. Thank you so much for your time. I'm um, going to hold myself accountable not for the the walks and the hikes in the express lane but see where I can uh, push myself so I can get that quote of, geez, I'm having fun now. <laughs> Thank I you so, so much, Jess. <laughs> no worries. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's amazing episode. These are episodes that I want to continue to bring to the world because I believe everyone has a story to share and that we can learn and grow by diving into these stories. Now, if you have gotten something out of today's episode or any of the episodes from the Standout Life podcast series, then it's highly likely that you know someone else who would get something from these episodes as well. So my ask to you is to please share the series, send someone today a link, subscribe, rate and review. And by doing that, this podcast starts to pop and be seen by others around the world and we can continue to expand the people, the conversations and the insights that we share together.